In John's 18-verse prologue, uh, we read of the most glorious epochal event yet in God's glorious plan to save an undeserving, rebellious people from their sin, unite them to his Son, and fill them with his Spirit for all of eternity. God becomes a man. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling. He tabernacled among us. But as someone has famously noted... The four Gospels are really passion narratives with lengthy introductions. It's true. And and everything Jesus says and does must be interpreted in light of the book's climax. His death on the cross. After three years of public ministry, Jesus is crucified. Yet the grave cannot hold him. Our Lord rises from death. And after revealing himself to his disciples in his resurrection body, Jesus returns to the Father. But once Jesus ascends to heaven, he must leave a witness to himself on earth. Our Lord hasn't written a thing, not so much as a single parable. And now he's gone. Who will teach people about Jesus? Who will be the leaders of the church? It's the 12 disciples. It's the 12 apostles. Beloved, this is how, this is how the risen Christ continues to act and to teach and his kingdom advance through the witness of his chosen apostles empowered through the Holy Spirit. And so the 12 go forth in the Spirit's power, testifying to all God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. In Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, Acts 1, chapter 8. And the first century church did the same, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They, too, went into the world on witness, testifying to Christ in the Spirit's power. And this is the way it's been now for 2,000 years. But it begins here in our text today with these five men, Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. In time, God will use these men as vessels. He'll use them as vehicles for his special revelation to the world. They will be given authority to speak and teach and write on behalf of Jesus Christ. They aren't doing these things yet in John chapter 1. That happens later after Jesus returns to the Father and the Spirit is poured out. But during Jesus' public ministry, these men, along with the other apostles, uh, sit at his feet and they learn from him. And through their faithful witness and authoritative teaching, an authority given to them by Jesus himself and empowered by the Holy Spirit, the church exists You said, when we we read this list of names, Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, we should rejoice. We should praise God. He did not leave us without witness. Thank God for the faithfulness of these men, for their willingness to lose everything for the sake of the gospel, to pick up their cross daily and follow Jesus in death that we might have eternal life. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever noticed, 
But John chapter 1, verses 19 to 51, covers four days in the early ministry of Jesus. And if we include the wedding at Cana in chapter 2, when our Lord turns water into wine and he reveals his glory, that covers a period of one week, which is full of biblical significance. But we'll get to that one week thing next week. But John carefully tracks the days on day one. We see the interaction between John the Baptist and the religious authorities who have come from Jerusalem. This interaction focuses on the identity of the Baptist and uh, who prepares the way for the coming one and the ministry that he has of baptizing Jews in water. That's on the first day. On day two, the Baptist testifies of the Spirit coming down to remain upon Jesus by which the Baptist recognized Jesus as the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now we come to days three and four. On day three, Jesus collects two disciples, John and Andrew. They come with Jesus, believing him to be the Messiah, based on the witness of John the Baptist. Andrew, a former disciple of the Baptist, he in turn informs his brother Peter, we have found the Messiah. And just to clarify a very important point, The meetings with Jesus described here in John 1 would have preceded the more critical encounters between Jesus and his disciples described in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, This account takes place before Jesus formally calls them as his disciples, at which time they abandon their fishing business or their tax office or or what have you. So if you've ever been... um, Startled, maybe, by the promptness, the readiness of the disciples to abandon their livelihood in response to Jesus' explicit call in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, it's psychologically and historically more plausible if that wasn't their first exposure to the Lord or their first demonstration of fealty toward him. This earlier contact in John chapter 1 helps explain their readiness to make that radical break. But at this point in John 1, these fledgling disciples are still at the come and you will see stage. uh, The you will see greater things than that stage. On day four, Jesus collects two more men, men seemingly unconnected with the Baptist ministry, Philip and Nathaniel. So on one level, These verses are our introduction to the men who will later become the Lord's apostles. Uh, Of course, we have to read the book twice to appreciate that. But there's another level, John's more immediate concern, and this is the direction I'm going to be taking the sermon today. The introduction to John's gospel is about confessing who Jesus is and bearing witness to him. Confessing who Jesus is, bearing witness to him. And so the title of our sermon today is Confession and Witness, Jesus Gains His First Disciples. Jesus is believed to be the fulfiller of Old Testament expectation. Look at verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. So do you see? Confession and witness. Verse 41, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. Confession and witness. 
Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Confession and witness. And then the great confession of Nathanael in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And then Jesus himself finishes the account by saying something startling in verse 51. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Brothers and sisters, John the Apostle intends for the rest of his book to be read in light of these confessions. Good things can come out of Nazareth because Jesus' real origin is from above. Jesus is the decisive ultimate connection between heaven and earth. He is the Messiah, the one Moses and the prophets wrote about, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Son of Man. And so we confess who Jesus is and bear faithful witness to him. So we begin in verse 35. The next day, John, that is John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So the Baptist sees Jesus passing by, and he identifies him again as the Lamb of God. That man right there. And this time, two of his uh, own disciples hear their master's witness. One of them is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, The other man isn't named, but he's probably the Apostle John himself. Uh, One of the clues to his identity is that throughout the Gospel of John, the author never overtly names himself, deliberately so. So the fact that the other disciple goes unnamed matches the way John, the son of Zebedee, deals with his own presence elsewhere in this Gospel. We see it over and over again. Also, the specification, I think, of the hour in verse 39, that sounds like a detail that's been sharply etched onto the mind of John the writer uh, when he first encountered Jesus Christ. It was about four in the afternoon. Now, the text doesn't say that the Baptist expected his followers to become disciples of Jesus in that moment. Look, The Lamb of God, what are you guys waiting for? Go, go, follow him. Uh, In fact, some of his disciples remained with him even after his death. We read about that in Acts chapter 19. But in light of John the Baptist's self-perception, as he is the forerunner of the coming one, it's reasonable to assume that at least some of his disciples, perhaps those who understood him best, discerned that their master was constantly pointing beyond himself to another figure. And once he had identified Jesus as the coming one, it was only then to be expected that some of them would follow Jesus. So Andrew and John, they aren't being disloyal, right? Like that guy in the, uh, the distracted boyfriend meme. You know, it's, it's, they're going, they, they aren't a bat abandoning the Baptist in favor of, of a more prestigious uh, leader. No, these two are being truest to the teachings of the Messiah's forerunner. 
And John the Baptist himself understood this. Look at John chapter twenty, uh, John chapter three, verses twenty-seven and to thirty. This is the only other time you really see the Baptist ministering and speaking uh, in John's gospel. A person, chapter three, verse twenty-seven. John the Baptist says, "A person can receive only what is given them from heaven." You yourselves can testify that I said, "I am not the Messiah." But I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Verse 38 of chapter 1. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? And it appears that the evangelist is sort of operating on two levels here. The question makes sense just as a straightforward narrative. Jesus asks the two men who are following him to articulate what's on their minds. However, the apostle John wants his readers to reflect on a deeper question What do you want? What are you seeking? What are you looking for? If the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, were to ask you that question, you would respond in a certain way. What do you want from the PM, politically speaking? Uh, What does he have the power to do? Because if your request falls within his purview, he may be able to help. If a Bell customer service technician asks you that question, what do you want? What are you seeking? What are you looking for? It's the same thing. I can, I can go to them with all my internet and telephone needs, right? What about if it's Jesus Christ who's asking that question? The incarnate word. The Lamb of God. What do you want, Angela? What are you seeking, Cindy? What are you looking for, Jill? Jesus confronts those who make any show of beginning to follow him, and demands that we articulate what we really want in life. And if our hearts are captured by idols, what we were praying about at our prayer meeting last week, or if we don't understand who Jesus truly is, the Messiah, the one that Moses wrote about in the law, about who the the prophet spoke of, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Son of Man, if we think he's just some great genie in the sky... You know, or if we don't understand the nature of Christian discipleship, then what we will seek from the Lord will be off, way off. Consider for a moment the possible ways the Baptist disciples could have answered Jesus' question. What do you seek? What do you want? What are you looking for? And they could have said, we seek God's kingdom. We seek to, to rid the land of the Romans. We seek the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. We seek the king from David's line. We seek power and wealth. Instead, they ask, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Where are you abiding? And that word abide is so characteristic of John's gospel, especially in chapter 15, that it may be the evangelist is assigning more symbolic depth to the question than these two men actually intended at the time. 
And again, that's a theme that keeps being repeated throughout John's gospel. People speak better than they know. There, there, there's, he's assigning more symbolic depth to this question. When John and Andrew come to Jesus, they come to him as their teacher. They call him rabbi. And their main concern, as we see here, is to be with him. The disciples want to know where Jesus abides. And he invites them to come and they will see. 39b. So they went and saw where he was abiding, and they abided with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Turn quickly to John 15:4. I'm going to read this text from the ESV version because it says abide each time. Um, but listen to this. This is where John's taking things, I think. John 15:4. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. For this, my father, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Again, I think the evangelist is assigning more symbolic depth to that question than John and Andrew intended at the time. I think John wants his readers to desire the same thing. He wants us to inquire about Jesus, to go to Jesus, to behold what it is like to abide with Jesus, and then to abide with him. What happens next? Verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother was one of the two who heard what John the Baptist had said and who had followed Jesus. So even though Andrew is introduced into the narrative before Peter, he's presented as Simon Peter's brother. Because by the time this gospel was written, Peter's name was widely known and and uh, Andrew's name much less so. Verse 41, the first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And so Andrew becomes the first in a long line of successors who have discovered that the most common and the most effective Christian testimony is the private witness of friend to friend, family member to family member. Brother, sister, let me lovingly encourage you or admonish you, as the case may be, you are the natural agent God will use to save your family and friends. If not you, then who? Teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. That's what evangelism is. Teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Are you doing that with the members of your family? With your friends? 
I had a professor at Toronto Baptist Seminary who was saved as a teenager in the 1970s. And the first thing he did was rush home to tell his brother. He burst into their shared bedroom. Andre, I have two things to say to you. Put down the bong. (laughs) And Jesus is not an alien. That was his confession and witness. It sounds hilarious, right? But actually, both those brothers believed that Jesus was probably an alien. That's why he could do all these miraculous things. That was a real thing. Put down the bong. Jesus is not an alien. And the Lord eventually saved his brother. And he became a pastor. He's serving in Quebec today, as is his son. With hindsight, Andrew bringing his brother Peter to Jesus was perhaps as great a service to the church as any person ever did. Christian, how do you know that your as yet unbelieving cousin might not have a child who raised in the nurture and admonition of a believing home because you proclaimed the gospel to your cousin and by God's grace they believed won't be the next Billy Graham or George Whitfield? Verse 41, the first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. We have found the anointed one. Israel's kings were anointed with oil. So at this stage, Andrew saw in the term Messiah a royal designation of the coming one. He saw Jesus as the political, militaristic king of the nation. And and then John translates the term for his Greek readers, the Christ, from the Greek to anoint. Verse 42, and he brought him, he brought his brother Peter to Jesus. And Peter went willingly, trusting the witness of his brother and hoping for the coming Messiah. Could this be the one? Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So when Peter is brought to him, Jesus assigns him a new name as a declaration of what Peter will become, what Jesus will make of him. Up to this point, his name had been Simon, son of John. But Jesus says, you will be called Cephas, which in Aramaic means rock. And again, because some of the readers would be unfamiliar with the Semitic term, John translates the word as Peter. Now, whether this change of name uh, is meant to reflect a change in character, or is in Matthew 16 to grant Peter a certain foundational role in the establishment of the church, that's unclear. John's focus is much less on uh, what the new, what the name change means for Peter, than on Jesus, who knows people thoroughly as he'll demonstrate with Nathaniel in just a minute. Jesus not only sees into people, but so calls them that he makes them what he calls them to be. In the gospel accounts, Peter is impulsive, he's unstable, he's anything but a rock. But in the book of Acts, Peter gradually becomes a pillar of the early church. And now two more men are added to the list of Jesus' early disciples, Philip and Nathaniel. And in this way, chapter 1 provides concrete examples of a point John made earlier in his prologue. Although in general, 
Jesus' own people didn't receive him, yet some did, believing on his name and gaining from him the right, the authority to become children of God. Chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Now, bear with me just for one second here. This next part is very important, but it's technical. The NIV translation reads in verse 43, The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And the question is, is Jesus actually the subject of that sentence? Who is it that decides to leave for Galilee? Our NIV church Bible supports Jesus, obviously, as the subject, uh, but the Greek text actually leaves the matter open. It literally reads, the next day he decided to leave for Galilee and found Philip. Jesus said to him, and a number of commentators suggest it's quite possible that Andrew is the subject of the first clause. Verse 43, the next day, Andrew decided to leave for Galilee. Jesus is not in the text. In that case, Andrew first, verse 41, first found his brother Simon Peter and then found Philip. Uh, which not only gives extra significance to the word first, but it also explains why Jesus is actually named in the second sentence of verse 43. Now, that interpretation, it can't be proved because John doesn't actually say that the one who decided to enter Galilee after finding Philip actually brought him to Jesus. Uh, if Andrew is the subject, that just has to be assumed, but it's a natural enough assumption considering just how condensed the narrative is. However, that this view is correct, that Andrew is the subject of that sentence, is supported by the fact that everyone else who comes to Jesus in chapter 1 does so because of someone else's witness. If Andrew is the subject, then there are no exceptions. Everyone who comes to Jesus in chapter 1 of John's Gospel does so because of someone else's witness. Theologically, John is reinforcing his theme of the importance of bearing witness. John the Baptist bears witness. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Andrew bears witness first to his brother, Peter, and then to Philip. We have found the Messiah. Philip bears witness. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Christian, I want to ask, what does bearing witness to Christ look like in your life? Are you bearing witness to Christ? How are you bearing witness to Christ? Obviously, the Old Testament categories, fulfillment categories of, of the Messiah, um, they're not going to have the same impact on your family and friends probably as it might on a, on a first century Jew. So we may have to start somewhere else. And I hope my sermon actually on, in John 4 in a few weeks' time will offer some practical help. We'll be considering five lessons from Jesus the Evangelist from our Lord's talk with the Samaritan woman at the well. But in the meantime, Good Friday is coming, right? Easter Sunday is coming. We need to talk to people about Jesus' death. We need to talk to people about Jesus' resurrection. Not just during Passion Week, but every week. But this week, 
perhaps, you can explain what the holiday commemorates. It's an evangelistic opportunity served up on a silver platter. Most Canadians don't have a clue. Confess and witness. Teach what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of his son for sin with the aim to persuade people. With the aim to persuade your mother, your brother, your grandfather, your boss, your neighbor. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is such a desperate need to orient people to the fundamental purpose of Jesus' coming. We live in a biblically illiterate society. People don't have the first clue. Hear me, everyone. Jesus is a savior. Jesus was born to die to save guilty sinners from eternal condemnation. Who did Jesus come to save? His people, Jews and Gentiles, Everyone who would ever believe in him. How does he save them? By leaving the glories of heaven and becoming a man and dying in our place on the cross. Jesus' death is a substitutionary, vicarious sacrifice. His death is the death that we deserve. Is as we saw last week in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Confess and witness. Teach the gospel with the aim to persuade Introductions complete. Jesus now issues the foundational challenge to Philip. Follow me. And John's playing with both meanings of that word here. He does this a lot in his gospel. John loves wordplay. It's one of his literary distinctives. Follow me. Which on one level means to follow Jesus in the sense of I'm going this way. Come with me. But it also means taking the first steps of genuine discipleship. Follow me. And know this, beloved. Any disciple who would follow Jesus needs to understand that their choice will require total commitment. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. There is a cost, a real cost to following Jesus. Flip over quickly to Luke chapter 9, verse 57. This is on page 1040 of our church Bibles. Luke 9, 57. And keep your finger there. We're going to be there for a bit. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But 
first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. So do you see, the three who protest the loudest about how eagerly they will follow Jesus are firmly put in their place. They have not counted the cost of discipleship. And so their pious protestations take on the ugly hue of self-love. To be a follower of Jesus entails a painful renunciation of self-interest and a wholehearted turn to Jesus' interests. In any Christian view of life, self-fulfillment is never, ever the controlling issue. We live for Christ. Our first allegiance is to Christ. Just flip back a couple of pages to Luke 9.23. Whoever wants to be my disciple... Friend, is that something you desire? Do you want to be Jesus' disciple? Do you consider yourself even now to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Then listen carefully. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Follow Jesus where? To Calvary, to death, bearing our own cross on our own shoulders daily. Verse 24, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whatever loses their life for me will save it. And I'm sure what Jesus' disciples wanted to hear, what they were expecting to hear from their lips, from the lips of the Messiah King, was something more along the lines of, strap on your swords, men, we're going to Jerusalem, and I am going to personally cut off the head of Pontius Pilate. Yeah! See, that's how the kings of Israel were supposed to talk. That was the expectation. Instead, they get the utterly unexpected, a rejected, suffering Messiah. Jesus is the king, all right, but he's a king who dies in shame. Which not only has implications on the disciples' understanding of Jesus' Messiahship, but equally implications for their own discipleship. This does not look good. (laughs) The cross in Jesus' culture was an image of extreme repugnance. It was an instrument of cruelty and pain, torture, death, dehumanization, and shame. And the only people in this culture who picked up their cross were condemned criminals. It was called the patibulum, the cross member. And you would carry it to the place of execution. And once you picked up your cross, there was no hope for you. There was only a shameful and excruciating death. If Jesus were using this illustration today, he would say, strap yourself into the electric chair and follow me in death. Death to everything, Christian. Death to self-interest. Death to reputation. Death to your autonomous plans and goals in life. Death to your family. Death to money. Death to career ambitions, death to artistic aspirations, death to ministry aspirations, death to everything. Follow me, Jesus says, on the road to Calvary, the cross member of your instrument of death and shame over your shoulders, daily, daily bearing the reproach of a world who hates your king, 
who hates my universal dominion, a world who despises my weakness and my shame. Follow me. Verse 44. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so Andrew brought Peter and Philip to Jesus as he did that. So Philip finds Nathanael in the same way, and he witnesses to him which has been the foundational principle of Christian expansion ever since. Followers of Jesus bear witness of Jesus to others who in turn become disciples and then repeat the process. That's how it's worked for 2,000 years. And Philip's witness is similar to Andrew's, except for uh, he doesn't call Jesus the Messiah, but rather the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom all the prophets also wrote, which is just another way of saying all the Old Testament scriptures. And who is this person the law and the prophets speak of that they have found? Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then we have Nathaniel's famous response, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Now at this time, Nazareth's population was about 500 people at most. It's located in Galilee, in the northern part of the country. And due to the Assyrian invasion in 721 BC, this region uh, had been predominantly Gentile in population for centuries. And Jews during this time did not think, oh, how nice ethnic diversity in the Holy Land. (laughs) No, God had promised this land to the children of Abraham as an eternal inheritance, but now Gentiles were living there. And in his gospel, Matthew actually refers to this region of Israel as Galilee of the Gentiles, chapter 4, verse 15, which is just real estate evaluation death. (laughs) Galilee of the Gentiles. Oh, Uh, we'll read uh, later that Nathaniel himself is from Cana. That's another town in Galilee. And just as Galileans as a whole were frequently despised by people from Judea in the south, So it appears even fellow Galileans despise Nazareth. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? From that, like, armpit of a town? That's basically what he's saying. The eternal word became flesh and lived in Nazareth. This is where Jesus is from. He's Jesus of Nazareth, a despised town within a despised region, Galilee of the Gentiles. Our Lord did not grow up as Jesus the Bethlehemite, right, with its, its Davidic royal overtones, but as Jesus the Nazarene, with all its opprobrium and sneer. When, Jesus, when Christians were referred to in the book of Acts as the Nazarene sect, the expression was meant to hurt. Nazareth, can anything good come from there, Nathaniel asked? Come and see said Philip. Commentator F.F. Bruce writes this, Honest inquiry is a sovereign cure for prejudice. Honest inquiry is a sovereign cure for prejudice. Nazareth might be all that Nathaniel thought, but there's an exception to prove every rule. 
And what an exception these men had found. Come and see. Friends, over the next three quarters of a year or so, I'm going to be preaching every Sunday from John's Gospel. And if you're a skeptic, if you're a seeker, if you're a non-Christian, then perhaps you're asking, can anything good and true come from Christianity? I have honest questions about Jesus and sin and faith. And I want answers. I want answers from the Bible. I want answers from Jesus himself. Well, good. Honest inquiry is a sovereign cure for prejudice. So my counsel to you, friend, is keep coming out each week. We're delighted to have you with us. We don't check anybody's spiritual credentials at the door. All, all are welcome. And I promise you will hear Jesus faithfully preached from the Bible each Sunday. And you can ask all the questions that you'd like. Turn quickly to John 20, verses 30 to 31. These verses contain the purpose statement of the whole book. It's why John wrote this gospel. And his purposes are not academic. He's written this gospel in order that men and women may believe the truth that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus the Jesus whose portrait is drawn in this gospel. Chapter 20, verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. True life eternal life. Come and see, friend. Come to Jesus and see. Verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Bdag, uh, the best Greek lexicon money can buy, defines the word this way. Taking advantage through craft and underhanded methods. Deceitful, cunning, treacherous. Nathaniel is a certain kind of Israelite. He, uh, he may have been blunt in his criticism of Nazareth, but he was an Israelite without duplicitous motives. And this expression, a true Israelite in whom is no deceit, recalls the story of Jacob a name which means deceiver. We're going to come to Jacob in a second with this vision. But do you remember the story? Esau is furious when he learns that Jacob had deceived their father, Isaac, and Isaac gave Jacob the blessing that was intended for Esau. And Isaac says, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob, deceiver? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. But in the very next chapter, Jacob comes to be called what? Israel. After receiving a vision of God that transforms his character. 
a vision of a stairway to heaven and angels ascending and descending upon him. More on that in a second. Nathaniel, then, is an Israelite without deceit. He, he's an Israel, not a Jacob. A man worthy of the blessing pronounced in Psalm 32 to, Blessed is the man in whose spirit is no deceit. Nathaniel asks in verse 48, How do you know me? Which means, actually, uh, Jesus' brief summary of his character is, He hit the nail on the head. Nathaniel is indeed an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree, before Philip called you. Now, what uh, Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree, we don't know. Perhaps he was praying in its shade. Uh, the point is Jesus' supernatural knowledge, not Nathaniel's activity. But Jesus' miracle prompts a confession from Nathaniel, and it's a big one. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, teacher, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Ah, now Nathaniel addresses Jesus as rabbi, a far more respectful approach than his first blunt question. Something good has come from Nazareth, evidently. But the titles Nathaniel assigns to Jesus go way beyond what any disciple would normally ascribe to his rabbi. First, he says, you are the son of God. What, okay, what does that mean? What's Nathaniel confessing? Listen to this quote from the Quran, uh, 588 to 92. They say, that is, Christians say, they say, the most gracious has betaken a son. Indeed, ye have put forth a thing most monstrous. At it, the skies are about to burst, the earth to split asunder, and the mountains to fall down in utter ruin that they attributed a son to the most gracious, for it is not consonant with the majesty of the most gracious that he should beget a son. When Christians confess, proudly confess, Jesus is the Son of God, we are following a rich and orthodox heritage, but have you ever stopped to think what you're actually confessing by saying Jesus is the Son of God? <clears throat> Does the eternal God have a son? Think about that. I mean, the, the mythological God, Zeus, he had sex with a mortal woman, and she gave birth to Hercules. Is Jesus like Hercules? Is Jesus the biological offspring of God the Father? I see some squirming. <laughs> That's what the word son means, right? David is the son of Armando. And it's more confusing yet. The category son of God or God's son, kind of like kingdom in the Bible, can mean different things in the scriptures depending on the context. If you look at your, your bulletin, I, I had like a bit of a, an insert here, a handout. Israel as an entire nation is called God's son. So, for example, Hosea 11.1, 1, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Angels are referred to as the sons of God in Genesis 6.2, Job 1.6, and Job 2.1. The Davidic king, who prefigures the office of the Messiah, is also called God's son. Psalm 2.12, Kiss the son, or he will be angry. 
as well as citizens of God's kingdom, whose conduct reflects the conduct of God himself, are literally called the sons of God. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And finally, Jesus is called God's unique son. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. John 3, 16. But as all four Gospels show, it took a while for the disciples to appreciate all that was entailed in designating Jesus God's Son. And explaining this is one of the major concerns of all four Gospels. What kind of Son of God is Jesus? In the months to come, we'll be looking at that question very closely in chapter 5 in particular. What Nathaniel means by this title is the same thing he means by his second title, King of Israel. A title used by Palestinian Jews for the Messiah. But Jesus didn't really adopt either title for himself, either King of Israel or Son of God, uh, because in the popular Jewish popular mind, both expressions were largely tied to expectations of a political liberator, and Jesus wanted to avoid that connotation like the plague. He called himself most frequently the Son of Man. Jesus is not a political liberator. He was headed for Calvary. He was the suffering Messiah. He would reign from a cross. Even so, Jesus was the promised king, even if he would have to explain later to Pontius Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world. Chapter 18, 36. And then Jesus tells Nathanael in verse 50, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that including the signs reported in this gospel. There are eight of them, the first of which is about to unfold in chapter 2. Jesus turning the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, where he reveals his glory. More generically, what Nathaniel will see is the greatness, the greatness of the Son of Man far surpassing the vision of the patriarch Jacob. And although Jesus is addressing Nathanael, the you to whom he promises the vision in verse 51 is plural in the Greek. The vision is for all the disciples, and by extension for those who will follow them. Here's the vision. Very truly I tell you, plural, you, plural, will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The imagery, of course, is taken from Jacob's dream, the text that Phil read for us earlier, Genesis 28. Let's turn there. This is important. Genesis 28, uh, verses 10 to 12. This is on page 28 of your church Bibles. Genesis 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And those last two words, on it, in the NIV, could equally well be rendered on him. That is, the angels of God were ascending and descending on Jacob, which is clearly how John, the, how John the evangelist takes it. 
as the angels ascended and descended on Jacob, who is later renamed Israel, a sign of God's revelation and reaffirmation of the faithfulness to his promises made to Abraham, so angels will ascend and descend, descend on the Son of Man, on Jesus. What the disciples are promised then is heaven-sent confirmation that the one that they have acknowledged as the Messiah has indeed been appointed by God. Every Jew honored Jacob slash Israel, the father of the 12 tribes. Now, everyone must recognize that this same God has appointed Jesus as his Messiah. Genesis 28, 16. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set up a, set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, house of God, though the city used to be called Luz. Jacob called that place Bethel, which means house of God, because God revealed himself to Jacob in that place. But now, God is revealing himself to people, not at Bethel, but through Jesus, the new Bethel. Jesus is the new place where God is revealed, where heaven and earth and God and humanity meet. Jesus is the decisive, ultimate connection between heaven and earth. The old Bethel, the old house of God, has been superseded. It's no longer there at Bethel that God reveals himself, but in Jesus Christ. Just as later on, Jesus renders obsolete such holy places as the temple, we'll see that next week in chapter 2, and the sacred mountain of the Samaritans in chapter 4. Through Jesus comes the fullness of grace that surpasses and replaces that earlier grace, as John has already told us in verse 16. Correspondingly, Jesus' message to Nathaniel and the other disciples is that he himself will be the place of much greater divine revelation than that given on previous occasions. This is a theme that we see throughout the whole Bible, it's very important that we recognize this. Uh, quickly, turn to Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses. It's saying the same thing. This is on page 1204 of our church Bibles. Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And that and the form of that expression, by his son, in the original, he has spoken to us in son, in verse 2, in son, suggests pretty strongly that the author of Hebrews doesn't think of Jesus as just one more prophet, or even the supreme prophet. 
The idea is not that in the past the word of God was mediated by prophets, but in these last days the word has been mediated by the Son, who thus becomes the last of the prophets. Something much more fundamental is at issue here. In the past, when God used the prophets, he sometimes gave them words directly, like in oracles or in visions. Sometimes he providentially led them through experiences that they recorded. Sometimes he spoke through extraordinary events such as the burning bush. There were many times, various ways. Chapter 1, verse 1. But now God has spoken in Son. Or we might paraphrase, in the Son revelation. It's not that Jesus mediates the revelation. It's that Jesus is the revelation. It's not that Jesus simply brings the word. He is himself, so to speak, the word of God, the climactic word. The idea is very similar to what we read in John's prologue. And the Son is capable of this because he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, Hebrews 1 verse 3. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the very culmination of all of God's revelatory expressions. Jesus provides a fullness of divine self-disclosure of which even Jacob could only dream And these five disciples, who as yet know nothing of what awaits them, will soon be witnesses of revelation far exceeding that received by any Israelite in previous history. And as we read through the Gospel of John together over the next year, so will we. Friend, will you come and see? Will you take the time for the sake of your eternal soul, to come out to church each week and hear more about Jesus. The Gospel of John was written with the purpose that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen.